Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan and that silence means there's no Mark this week. We apologise that it's not going to be like a normal week, it's not going to be like a normal episode, it's also going to come out to you late. Everything that's been going on recently with the coronavirus and the government's announcements has kind of meant that um, in our normal lives, with our normal jobs, things have gone a bit crazy. I hope you can understand. We really hope that you accept our apologies because it is going to be slightly different. However, we will be back to normal next week. We promise. Promise, promise, promise. If we're not, I don't know what we'll do. We don't, we can't promise anything else, but we will. We'll be back to normal next week. Um, hopefully you guys are all staying safe and you're all well and not affected too badly by everything that's been going on. Um, come and chat to us on the Seeing Red page if you're on Facebook in the group because we are quite often having a couple of conversations around things um, interesting for us when people are listening to us perhaps because of having to work from home or because they're self-isolating um, or if you're abroad and for example you're in Italy and you're um, in the lockdown there so get in touch with us on social media and have a chat with us. This week we do have a bit of an unusual episode for you because the script has basically been written by one of our listeners, so Patreon Leanne Hyatt, as she has a personal collection to the case, which is really interesting. So Leanne wrote this episode and basically I've edited it into the format that we tend to follow, but it's all Leanne's work. So well done Leanne, amazing that you got this together for us Um, and really hope that you enjoy this. I think it will become a bit more apparent as we go through as to why this means a lot to her and why she decided to write it for us. So before I begin I'd like to thank our newest Patreon supporters. So thank you so much to Sabina Carr and Nada Glavin. Glavin or Gladden? I'm so sorry I went with Glavin. I wasn't certain. So thank you Sabina and thank you Nada. And thank you to all of our existing supporters who also help us with the financial costs of running the show. As we always say, we really appreciate your support. If you're interested in supporting us in that way, and there's bonus episodes, so you've got a bit of a back catalogue of bonus episodes if you do join, um, and you get some welcome goodies as well, go to patreon.com forward slash seeingredpodcast. And as I said at the beginning, when we were talking, when I was sort of saying about the coronavirus and chats around that, you can always get in touch with us if you've got anything you want to chat about or if you've got cases you want to suggest. We've, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can email us. And we are now also, I've been going on about it for a while, but we're also on YouTube, which is quite exciting for me because it's not something I usually use very often. It's not something I knew much about, but my other half is a YouTube video watcher enthusiast. I don't know the right word for them. YouTuber. Um, so I've popped our back catalogue up onto YouTube. So by the time you listen to this, it'll probably be most of season one. I'm working my way through it, making some videos. So if you know anybody who perhaps would want to listen to something like that and doesn't tend to listen to podcasts, um, they might want to have a look at us on YouTube and then they can see some pictures around the um, people involved in the cases too. So on to today's case. First of all, Leanne has given us some background information about the man in question. 
William Frederick Ian Beggs. He was the eldest of five children, he was born in Lurgan, County Armagh on the 4th of October 1963. His family, who live outside Moira in County Down, are members of the local Baptist church and are said to be well respected. At the age of 11, he enrolled at the Friends School of Lisbon, which is a Quaker institution, where he spent the next seven years. He gained nine GCE O-levels and two A-levels. His time there wasn't without incident, however, and apparently a former pupil said, One of the younger kids accused Beggs of trying to take his trousers down in a park. Eventually, his older brother found out and gave Beggs the beating of his life, and it would appear that this was quite a normal punishment, or at least not an unusual punishment for Beggs. Beggs was alienated at school, which seemed to either coincide with or caused him to retreat into right-wing unionist politics in Northern Ireland. He moved to England to study public administration at Teesside Polytechnic Middlesbrough, and this is where he became an active member of the right-wing Federation of Conservative Students. So at 19, he'd begun a course at Teesside Polytechnic in Middlesbrough, and that was when he joined this conservative association, but he was later rejected for his extreme anti-gay views. And at that time as well, Beggs first came to the attention of the police, who were investigating razor attacks on gay students in the Teesside area. But he'd come to the attention of the police as potentially the attacker. Four incidents involving razor slashings were reported to the police, and in one of them, Beggs was specifically reported to CID officers. He was reported to CID officers in Whitley Bay, North Tyneside, after he allegedly attacked a middle-aged man, and the man told police he had woken in pain to find Beggs carving symbols into his thighs. But for many reasons, including the ages of the victims and their unwillingness to want to attend court, Beggs was never prosecuted. It was while at Teesside in May 1987 that William Beggs was convicted of the murder of a young barman from Aberdeen called Barry Oldham. At this point in his life, Beggs was in his mid-twenties and was living in Bedsit student accommodation in Middlesbrough, North Yorkshire. Beggs met Barry Oldham at Rock Shots, which is a gay nightclub in Newcastle, while he was camping on the North Yorkshire moors and he took him back to his tent where they had sex, before Beggs killed Barry. Beggs slashed Barry Oldham's throat so hard that his jugular vein was severed, and Barry Oldham's body was found dumped in the countryside on the North Yorkshire moors. Beggs had attempted to dismember the barman's body, but was largely unsuccessful. He had used a serrated knife to try and hack off his head. I just, I can't cope. It's horrendous, isn't it? Not just how brutal and how horrific it is, but also the disrespect and just the lack of any sort of empathy for this guy. Horrendous. Beggs was caught and he was charged with the murder due to the fact that Barry's blood was found in his flat. A jury at Teesside Crown Court found him guilty of killing the barman after rejecting his defence that he had acted in self-defence, and he was jailed for life. Absolutely fair. But he appealed this sentence, and just two years later, he was freed, because the Court of Appeal ruled that the judge at the original trial had wrongly allowed the jury to hear evidence of those other razor attacks by Beggs. And unfortunately, this is, I kind of was looking at this and I thought that's actually quite fair because he was never actually charged um, or convicted for those other razor attacks. It was felt at the Court of Appeal that this unfairly prejudiced the jury convicting for the death of Barry Oldham. 
So I did look into this a little bit here. So a bit of an aside from Leanne's script. As the law stood at the time, double jeopardy rules meant that he could never be tried again. But years after the law was changed, the CPS received a letter from Barry Oldham's dad, Albert Oldham, and he was asking them to consider a fresh prosecution. Albert has never given up on trying to get justice for his son. The cold case unit of North Yorkshire Police's major crime team have reviewed the case periodically and they said they would make every effort to persuade the CPS to mount a new case if they're able to. A source has stated to the Daily Record that they do not believe that the case will meet the high bar set by the CPS to consider prosecuting someone a second time for the same murder. They said to the Daily Record, the blood in Beggs' flat was identified as Barry Oldham's and although DNA techniques are now much more advanced and would produce a far stronger statistical case, the professional judgment is that it would not be accepted as fresh evidence and that the CPS are unlikely to seek a new trial. But Tom Wood, who is the former deputy chief constable who led the investigation that caught Angus Sinclair for the World's End murders, so potentially a case that we might cover in the future, he said he believed that the case was worth pursuing. So this is something that I would be really interested to follow and it'll be interesting to see whether anything comes of it, but as yet, unfortunately not. Okay, so back to 1989 and Beggs was released. He moved up to Ayrshire and he got a job with the council as a housing officer. But this did not last long because he was sacked after it emerged he had lied on his CV, which was compiled while he was in prison, awaiting the outcome of his appeal. And whilst Beggs attempted to behave normally, he could not help himself. And once again, in 1991, he attacked a man. This time he brought a guy called Brian McQuillan home after picking him up at a gay nightclub in Glasgow. Beggs viciously attacked Brian with a razor and the terrified man leapt out of the first floor window. He was found naked on the grass below, shaking and covered in blood by neighbours who had witnessed him leaping out of the building. He was left with a number of slash wounds. He told BBC Scotland's Frontline programme that he did not think he would get out alive. The attack prompted McQuillan to write to newspaper editors in December 1992, warning that Beggs was a dangerous man who could strike again. And he wrote, The largest part of my anxiety and sorrow is for the parents and friends of Barry Oldham. And, if he is once again set free, most likely his next victim. And Brian, sadly, was so very right. Beggs would strike again. And his next victim wouldn't be as lucky, however. So Beggs had been examined by a psychiatrist based at the state hospital Carstairs, but the trial judge, Lord Morrison, called for further reports. When he appeared for sentencing, the judge said it was clear he was a danger to the public and that he had an abnormal personality. He was jailed for six years. So first of all, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think six years is enough? Do you think it's too long? Do you think it's not enough? During that sentence, his parents came to Scotland and mounted a campaign against the Scottish prison authorities over what they alleged was the mistreatment of their son in jail. And again, a bit of an aside here, but honestly, the number of times this guy complains about stuff that he's been, the way he's being treated in jail, consistently have a look online at some of the news articles about his things that he's moaned about while he's in prison, constant, going on about stuff all the time. He was released early from his six-year sentence in 1994 for good behaviour and he moved to Scotland sometime later. 
He then studied computing at Paisley University and started a postgraduate degree, funding his studies by working at Sykes Call Centre in Edinburgh, where he trained staff. And for a time he appeared to live quietly at the flat he owned in Kilmarnock. And here is our first bit of personal experience from Liam. She said, I was a young girl of 19 when I moved to the flat and I had a young baby who wasn't even a year old at that time. The residence was a block of flats with a ground floor and a first floor with a communal hallway and shared entry system and garden. The flats were laid out in a T-shape. We all knew each other in the entry and life was just life. We all came and went and said hello in the passing and we brought in each other's washing if it rained. I knew Beggs, not well, but I knew him. He always appeared to be pleasant, polite and well-spoken. I remember often hearing loud accordion and church music being played and he often brought male company home. I also knew that he went camping often and I figured he was some kind of scout leader as I saw him leaving the flat in his uniform with his bags of camping equipment. I later found out that before I moved in, other neighbours had tried to have him evicted, that his car had been targeted by local youths due to his homosexuality, but I never witnessed any of this and wasn't aware at the time about the brutal attack on Brian seven years previously. I just took him as I found him and I found him to be okay. He honestly didn't appear creepy or strange. How wrong I was about him. I could never have imagined the monster he actually was. A monster who was living upstairs from me. Wow. I mean, isn't it chilling to hear those descriptions? It makes me really think about who do I live near to? Who lives in my street? I know my next door neighbours either side of the house and I'm pretty confident they're not killers or psychos pretty confident um no I'm pretty uh, you know they're lovely our neighbours but it does make you wonder doesn't it and it makes you think god you just don't know so once again Bex's appetite for violence surfaced several men told police that they suffered terrifying ordeals during encounters with Bex during the late 90s but he managed to avoid any more convictions due apparently to lack of evidence and again witnesses not wanting to take things further So we now fast forward to 1998. Barry Wallace, a fun-loving and popular 18-year-old, was enjoying a Christmas night out with work colleagues at the Fox Bar Hotel in the town's London Road. Barry worked as a shelf stacker in in a local supermarket and had his whole life ahead of him. The party was on the Saturday night, but it ran over into the Sunday morning. This isn't unusual, but when Barry didn't come home, his worried parents Ian and Christine then contacted the police to report him missing. A friend was probably the last person to see Barry at around 1.45 on Sunday morning as he walked through a taxi rank in Forgate, Kilmarnock, heading towards Green Street and Portland Street. Barry's described as six foot two with a fair complexion, short brown hair, sparkling green eyes and a beautiful infectious smile. Just days later, police divers on a training course found human limbs in Loch Lomond, north of Glasgow. A full-scale search recovered more body parts in the days ahead and the week after a severed head was found washed up on a beach by a woman walking her dog just 10 minutes drive from Barry's hometown. It was confirmed that the remains belonged to Barry. Can you imagine the horror his parents went through with the not knowing, the worrying, then the shock of the realisation that their son had been killed, his body had been mutilated and chopped up and then he was thrown into the water. 
One morning, less than 10 days before Christmas, on the 17th of December, Beggs was at work. It was a normal morning. He probably would have said hello to his colleagues, made himself a coffee and settled down to get an early start for the day ahead. The radio was on and he listened to the news. And on the news, it announced that police are searching a residence in Kilmarnock in relation to murdered teenager Barry Wallace. Beggs panicked and rushed out of work. And as Leanne said in her notes, it was on the radio that they were currently searching his home, giving him a big heads up. So here we have another section of Leanne's personal experience, because in this quiet cul-de-sac within a housing scheme, the streets around were filling with police cars, vans and other vehicles. She says, I remember waking up on that freezing cold morning. It was that funny half-light. I woke with a fright but couldn't work out what had startled me. I then heard a couple of loud bangs and I knew by the echo and the reverberation that something close in the hallway, it sounded like someone was kicking in a door. I thought maybe a neighbour had locked themselves out but to be honest I just couldn't work it out. I could hear lots of different voices and the footsteps sounded like there was a lot of people there. I lay in bed for a few seconds to try and work out what was happening. My flat was on the ground floor so I got up and looked out of the window and I saw police officers putting blue tape around the building just outside my window. I then saw what appeared to be an endless line of police cars and I knew then something really bad had happened. I unlocked my front door and I went to step into the communal hallway and I literally couldn't believe my eyes. The place was just filled with people, the whole place. People in white suits, people pulling on white suits. There was just so many people I couldn't even make sense of what was happening. I just remember this horrible feeling in my stomach and feeling sick. I absolutely knew that something bad had happened and I started to shake with cold and fright. A man approached me and asked me to go back inside. I asked him what was happening and he just repeated to me, go back inside, someone would speak to me. Christ, it is so chilling to hear this description, isn't it? So the police were using battering rams to enter the property. That's what Leanne could hear. And I just wanted to take a moment to just let that sink in. Like she looks out of her window and her flat is being cordoned off. She opens her front door and there are people in like the forensic white suits, like the all over suits. Oh my God. Like what the hell? Like how, how do you still live there and come away from that and not freak out every time you go to open your front door? Bless her. She had the young baby there when she first moved in. And so she was there with her child. Like Something I really liked about what Leanne did with writing this was I just found it quite brave as well, what she's saying, that this is this would have been terrifying. I'm not surprised she was shaking because you'd just go into shock, wouldn't you? So Beggs was not at home and thanks to the information on the news, he wasn't planning to head back to the flat anytime soon. The block was sealed off and the forensic scientists move in. They later removed sacks of material for laboratory examination and Leanne describes what she saw next. Large quantities of Beck's belongings were being removed from the flat, a mattress, bags of what appeared to be clothing, household equipment. All of the walls in the entry were covered in a dark substance as the whole place was examined for fingerprints. Myself and all the other occupants had to have our fingerprints taken so ours could be eliminated. Barry Wallace's blood was found within Beggs's flat, which had just recently been redecorated. Wallpaper was stripped off and the blood was found beneath the freshly papered walls. It emerged that Beggs's parents had been over from Ireland to help him redecorate. I just felt sick. How could I have ever thought the man was okay? 
not thought him creepy. I looked at the pictures of him that were in every newspaper and he just looked like a cold-hearted killer. But maybe he just looks that way because now we know what he is. And I think we've touched on this before, haven't we? When you know someone's past, you almost see it. You see this look in their photographs or you see the dead eyes. But until that point, you probably wouldn't have thought that. And yeah, again, just chilling, isn't it? Despite the major effort to trace Beggs, senior investigating officers were saying initially it was just to eliminate him from inquiries. Chief investigating officer, Detective Superintendent John Gates repeatedly refused to link Beggs directly to the inquiry. It feels like this was perhaps too little too late because he'd already gone on the run and it would be some days later before a warrant was issued for Beggs' arrest and a picture of him was released to the public. An international manhunt was launched and by this time the now named Limbs in the Lock killer had made his way to the Netherlands. Barry Wallace's family had suffered enough. Barry's death was unnecessary and senseless. His parents and his brother were then to be further tormented with Beggs' relentless cat and mouse game of extradition. It would be almost two years until justice was done. So Leanne has given us a timeline of extradition and the sort of events that went around then. So on the 28th of December 1999, William Beggs is arrested in the Netherlands after he walks into an Amsterdam police station with a lawyer. On the 30th of December 1999, Dutch lawyer representing William Beggs says that his client will fight extradition proceedings from the Netherlands to Scotland. On the 9th of January 2000, the police divers recovered more body parts belonging to Barry Wallace from Loch Lomond. On the 14th of January 2000, the Crown Office confirms it has made a formal request to the Dutch authorities for the extradition of William Beggs. On the 29th of February 2000, Barry Wallace was finally laid to rest. He was laid to rest 87 days after he was last seen alive. On the 28th of March 2000, Beggs' extradition hearing opened in Amsterdam District Court of Justice and on the 11th of April the court granted the extradition of William Beggs to Scotland. On the 25th of April, Dutch lawyers acting for Beggs lodged an appeal to the Supreme Court of the Netherlands against extradition and on the 26th of September 2000, the Dutch Supreme Court ruled that Beggs should be extradited but they referred the decision to the country's justice minister and Justice Minister Benk Corthals upheld the decision to extradite Beggs to Scotland on the 15th of November 2000. On the 22nd of November 2000, Beggs' legal team launched a last-ditch challenge to the extradition order in the Dutch civil courts. They argued that media coverage in Scotland would have jeopardised his chance of a fair trial. And on the 5th of January 2001, the Dutch Court of Justice in The Hague ruled that Beggs must be extradited to Scotland. So finally, on the 9th of January 2001, he was extradited to Scotland, arriving at Edinburgh Airport under police escort. He appeared at Kilmarnock Sheriff Court on the 11th of January 2001, making no plea or declaration. And finally, on the 18th of September 2001, he went on trial at the High Court in Edinburgh for the murder of Barry Wallace. And I think, as Leanne said before, Barry Wallace's family had been put through so much already and then this just went on and on and on. 
And then more details of the murder came out. Beggs had cruelly placed Barry's severed head in a carrier bag. And it was thought that the killer had been on board a ferry to Ireland and tried to dispose of the remains, but the tide had simply washed it back to shore. It was thought that Beggs had lured Barry back to his flat, the same flat in which the razor attack had occurred eight years previously, and had brutally and sexually attacked him. No exact cause of death was found, but signs of torture were evident. His body was dismembered in the flat and cut into eight pieces and then disposed of bit by bit. Finally, on the 12th of October 2001, Beggs was convicted of handcuffing, injuring, sexually assaulting and murdering Barry Wallace before dismembering his body. He was sentenced to serve at least 20 years in prison for the crimes. But as I kind of mentioned before, Beggs continues to attempt to appeal his conviction and he stays in the news often. He adds salt to the wounds constantly, acting as an unofficial legal advisory to fellow inmates as well. He continuously claims that his human rights are being breached and he launches fight after fight with the Scottish Justice Service. In 2006, he made a bid for an appeal and his lawyers cited nine grounds for appeal, such as sensationalised news coverage tainting his trial but this was not successful, luckily. And so my final thing that from Leanne's notes is the quote, this quote from her, which I wanted to kind of finish this on. The sound of that accordion music literally plagued me. Was it played to cover up the sounds of something? How could this happen in a place where five other families lived out their lives, going about normal, daily, mundane business, and none of us were aware? It is just sickening. So thank you so much for listening to today's episode, guys. Thank you for joining me. I apologise again that it's been a bit of an unusual one. But I found this episode really interesting to write because although the key people in this case are the two Barrys, Brian, the other victims of Beg, plus the evil killer himself, I approached the case from Leanne's point of view. And we haven't ever really talked about how far-reaching a crime's effects can be. I know we talked about recently how cases close to home tend to hit us harder than others, but here she literally lived metres away from Beggs and his depraved acts of violence. So yeah, what a chilling case and what a chilling way to tell the story and a chilling aspect to kind of focus on. And I've said the word chilling too much, so it's probably losing all impact, but that's just how I feel. When she first got in touch with us, I did feel just it gave me chills and I really wanted to do this with her so thank you Leanne for writing this episode and for sending me all of your notes and all of your your information about what you went through and for sharing that with everybody. Once again I apologise that the episode is going to be out late this week, I hope you understand, again I just hope you're all safe, I hope you're not stressed too much because whilst this is really unnerving times and unusual times and it is really worrying, just remember to be nice, be kind to each other, check in on people if you can and if you're going to be staying home, don't eat all of the food straight away. I don't know, I don't have any good advice. Um, Try not to panic buy, as we talked about in our thing. The only thing I, um, in inverted commas, panic bought was um, they had chocolate, Terry's chocolate oranges for a pound. And I was like, oh, you only really ever get them at Christmas. So I bought two, put them in the cupboard. Love it. Um, Finally, we don't have any sponsors this week. However, um, as I know you all loved how much we loved the pasta that um, from Pasta Evangelist who sponsored us recently, 
I've popped a post up on social media. Mark went to Harrods in London um, on the weekend and he went to Pastor Evangelist in Harrods and got himself some treats. Unfortunately, he didn't get me any treats, but then equally, I don't really want, I'm, I don't really want to see him. If he's been going around London, a bit worried about that. So, um, I think everybody's kind of self-isolating a little bit, aren't you, in the sensible ways. Um, so yeah, he's bought himself some treats and I've put some pictures up on social media and a few of our listeners as well who have, um, signed up for Pastor Evangelist using our code sent some pictures through as well. So if you have, let us know. Um, so yeah, there we go. All it remains for me to say then is thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me. I really hope you enjoyed the episode and you found the case interesting and also you found it interesting to hear it from a slightly different point of view. And thank you again to Leanne for writing this for us. Normal service will resume next week and we'll see you then. Cheers for listening. Bye.